Buy low, sell high. Very easy to say, but not always so easy to do. For example, high interest rates are hurting the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices in a lot of markets are falling, even for many of the best assets. So it's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com pockets, fundrise.com pockets. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, everyone. Welcome to On The Market. I'm your host, Dave Meyer, and we have an excellent show for you today. I know I say that every time, but we really do. Today, we have one of my favorite guests we've ever had coming back. His name is John Burns. You may know him. He is the founder and CEO of a company called John Burns Research and Consulting. They do some of the best original research into the housing market, construction, affordability, anywhere on the market. You know, I love to look at data, but I am mostly looking at and examining other people's data. John and his team are creating all new data sets to help us understand the housing market better. Uh, and we have a fascinating conversation with him where he shares what him and his team have uncovered about the housing market over the last three to six months. And if you listen all the way through, which you should, you'll probably hear John blow my mind several times where I'm sort of incredulous, where he has in really unique, amazing data to share that I really don't think you can get anywhere else. So super lucky and excited to have John Burns on the show today. So we're going to take a quick break and then we'll bring him on. John Burns, welcome back to On The Market. Thanks for joining us again. My pleasure, Dave. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. For our listeners who didn't listen to your previous episode or appearance on this show, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, sure. Uh, I own a company called John Burns Research and Consulting. We do, uh, there's about 130 of us. We try to figure out what's going on in the housing market for basically big, big companies that build homes and uh, invest in the market, a lot of hedge funds, private equity, building product companies. And we do about a thousand consulting assignments a year for them too. So we've got a subscription research business and then a consulting business. That's great. And, and it's an amazing source of data. John's also a great follow on Twitter if you want to uh, follow some of the research there. One of the reasons I, I, I really enjoy speaking with you, John, is because you all do such great original research. You know, we we look at a lot of data here, but we're not producing most of it ourselves. So just at a high level, like what is your research showing you about the housing market right now in the broadest sense? <laughs> As you said, the, the problem with doing so much research is then trying to summarize it all. <laughs> <laughs> we'll take your, your top three points. Yeah, pr probably the, the 
the top three would be household formation and, and migration. So um, we saw actually a decline in households formation during the first year of COVID and then a rapid surge. Um, and we ended up forming 300,000 more households across the country than we thought. Um, than, you know, than we thought during normal times, let alone a pandemic. So we were concerned with all this construction coming, particularly in apartments, that it was going to empty up into uh, a market and be hard to lease up. And in, in, t- in turn, it was the exact opposite. Interesting. I know. It was, that, that was probably the most fascinating thing. And the data on that kind of lags, and that's the challenge. Uh, but some of the apartment REITs were helping us out with that. And then um, we just uh, we just released some migration data where we've now got uh, how often people are moving domestically. We, can't, we haven't figured out international people coming here yet um, and with only a two-month lag. So the, the second part of this would be um, people are moving less. And so some of the migration, even into some of the great areas like like Phoenix and Texas and um, even I was really surprised Orlando have really slowed a lot. I mean, you go to Orlando and the hotels are all full and you'd be really stunned to, to see that. But um, that's what's happening. And our and our consultants on the ground are saying the exact same thing. OK, great. Well, I have several follow ups. So this is, that was a good summary. I know they're giving me plenty to uh, talk to you about. So. First and foremost, before we I ask my question, I just want to let everyone know uh, what John is talking about when he talks about households is basically uh, an independent uh, group of people living together. It can be a single individual. It can be unrelated people living together like two roommates. Uh, and it's a good measurement because it basically measures the total demand for housing in the United States, basically rentals and houses combined. Uh, you take the total number of households and that's how many residential uh, units that we we need. And as John said, you know, it fell a little bit during COVID, makes sense during sort of lockdown periods, uh, but exploded over the last couple of years. Has it slowed down considerably in the last year or so? Yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll, I could tell you exactly. So a million three is what we expect in a typical year, a million three households formed. During the first year of COVID, we fell to a million during the second year, we went to a million nine. Wow! <laughs> uh, now we're now we're back. We formed a million three over the last twelve months. So um, it's I would say it's returned to a normal level over the last twelve months, but it's trending down again. So um, we're keeping a close eye on it. And do you see that that one point nine was sort of a pull forward, and therefore we should expect it to sort of decline into the future? Or do demographic trends support future household formation? I think there was a huge shift here to people living with fewer people. Hmm. And we we know this because some of the publicly traded apartment REITs have disclosed this, that the, the number of adults per apartment actually has fallen. Huh. So people are saying, you know, two roommates are getting a three bedroom because they need one for an office. Or somebody's got an ability to work from home five days a week or two days a week, so they're they're moving from uh, into a suburban location where they can afford more space uh, and a place to live alone. Um, so I think some of this has been pull, pulled forward, Dave, but I think a, a lot of this is what I just mentioned. And the other thing we're we're doing more research on is um, a lot of tenants are getting help from their parents. <laughs> so there there's a there's a baby boomer wealth effect here. That is just we've been talking about forever, but now 
Now, I, the data I wish I had was uh, how many people are leasing apartments and their parents are co-signing, because I think that is trending up. Wow. That, uh, how do you get, I mean, you don't have to disclose your sources, but how do you know that more people are getting help from their parents? Um, you know, that is more anecdotal, qualitative inf information. Uh, so that's why I don't quite have the data on that. But the big companies and a bunch of our clients were at, this, at our conference last two days were sharing this too. The rent to income ratios have not increased despite the fact that they've raised rents like 25% in the last three years. I'm like, how can that be? Are your tenants getting 25% raises? And like, no, some of it's some of that relocation. I think some of that is they're including parental income in the application. Oh, I see. Okay. So you can't, when you consider RTI, like if someone's co-signing, you count the parents' income in that equation. Well, that, that, it's a, I'm not sure everybody does it the same way. Okay. So given that 1.3 household formation over the last couple, over the last 12 months, uh, are the patterns holding where you would expect like the South Southeast seeing the most household formation or how does that break down regionally? No, it's, it's, it's still strong growth in the South. Uh, but I would say most of those markets, are, even the best ones are growing less than they were a year ago. Um, there's a couple like, like Orlando has actually got negative migration right now of, of Americans. I think there's 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 people from other countries moving into Orlando, so posit so I think it's positive. But um, it it is, it is fascinating to me uh, some of these things that you think would be positive but are actually kind of showing negative right now. And what are some of the? You mentioned that people are are moving less. Uh, is that also sort of across the board? Uh, well, I think that's I think that's far more. Well, I you mentioned pull forward. I think if people were going to move, they kind of did it a year or two ago. So so there was some of that. Uh, homeowners though are stuck. I mean, I, one of, one of my favorite questions to ask when I give a speech is how many of you own a home and how many of you are looking to move and everybody's hand comes down. No, no one raises their hand. Right. Yeah. So, or at least they're not going to admit it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Cause then everyone will go try and buy the house for them. Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, and the realtors are really struggling for that very reason right now. There's just not that much on the market. Interestingly, it is a tremendous beneficiary to the home builders because typically they have about 12% of the homes available for sale are, are new homes. Right now it's 32%. Oh my God. Wow. So if you want to buy a home, you're like, I can't find anything in the resale market, but the home builders got something. And so the, the new home market is doing pretty darn well. That is that is unbelievable. Um, I, I do want to follow up on that, but I did want to ask you one other migration Um question. It seemed that during the pandemic, people were moving across state lines a lot. And that was also that was making a lot of headlines. But there was some other data, uh, I think from a few different sources that showed that people were moving intrastate as well, a lot of out, outside from metro areas to suburban or rural areas. Is that pattern continuing? Um, well, we're, we're seeing it. And uh, I, I think it was the work from home trend. So, you, you know, get you didn't want to live too far from work because the commute was hell. And then all of a sudden you were told you don't have to commute or you only got to do it three days a week. So, hey, we can go get that house. Um, and I've been surprised that people are doing it not just to buy a house, but to, as we talked about, to rent. So, um, hey, I can rent a nicer place in a good school district. I only have to commute three days a week. 
the wild card right now is that how many of them are going to be forced to come back in and how many days per week. So that's that's the raging debate right now that we haven't completely put our arms around. But I know not all of them are going to be coming back in. So I, 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 I'm going to say that the, the rent growth and the home price appreciation in the suburban and exurban areas has definitely been more than the urban areas for that reason. Do you have a, a guess as to the work from home trend? Do you think it's going to stick around or will it decline? Well, I think more people are being pushed back into the office. But th- that said, I'll p- pick a number. So, say maybe 10% to 15% of people who used to have to come in every day are not going to have to come in uh, more than one or two days a week. And um, that's significant. <laughs> yeah. And I'm, I'm talking about office workers here, you know, people that clean hotels and manufacturing facilities. I'm, I'm just talking about office workers. All right. So I want to get back to something you mentioned earlier, which was about uh, multifamily construction. And, you know, there's been a lot of data pointing to that. I think Q2 this year was meant to be sort of the highest number of deliveries for uh, new apartments across the country. But you said that those apartments are being absorbed at expected rates. Is that correct? Uh, they have been, and that, that's been a surprise. I think these migration trends are going to change that conclusion, though. So I, I think a lot of these projects are going to open up and need to lease up. And I, I am hearing this, particularly in Phoenix right now, that it's quite competitive because of the new construction that's coming online. It's competitive to find tenants. Yeah, like their rents are falling. There was some data that came out, I guess, probably last fall, like Q3, that was showing that apartment rents were coming down um, in, in some markets, but it seems that's stabilized, right? On a national basis, at least. Yeah, yeah that's kind of vintage. I mean, the fourth quarter was pretty crappy. I mean, it's it's usually a slow quarter. It was s- slower than usual. And then the first quarter came back stronger than usual. It's usually a good quarter, and this was stronger than usual. So the, hmm. um, And I... I, I don't really know why. I haven't heard any good explanation for what was going on. Yeah, that that's that's interesting. I don't know. I guess maybe peak fear or something or recessions. I, I don't know. It, it must have been a confidence thing would be my guess too. And then in terms of new construction of residential properties, single family homes and, and small multifamily properties, how would you describe what's going on there? You just said that there's a huge percentage of the existing inventory on the market is comprised of of new homes, about almost what triple what it is normally. Right. Um, is that something you think will continue? And are builders picking up their construction rate um, given given the climate right now? They absolutely are, and I've got a great data point on that. So we survey twenty percent of the home builders every month, and we ask them in November to predict what what was going to happen in 2023. And they thought their sales would be down 9% in 2023. We just surveyed them last month and they think their sales are going to be up 7% this year. Wow. So their business plans have completely changed. And so if you're running a business and and you expect it to be down and now you expect it to be up, you're starting a hell of a lot more homes. And there's a big bifurcation here. There's There's the big companies with great balance sheets that are just killing it. I think there are small builders that have been struggling a little bit. You know, their construction lender maybe isn't as eager to finance them anymore. And so I I think you're going to see the big builders get bigger through all of this. So the the overall numbers may not go up 
at all this year, but I think the market share for the big companies is going to go up. It's so interesting just in the sort of a macroeconomic standpoint, because normally when you see a housing slowdown, building goes down and you see like a lot of layoffs, for example, in the construction industry. But that sort of what you're saying makes sense. When you look at jobs numbers, you don't see you, you see construction has been picking up jobs for a lot of the months in 2023. I, I think this this is probably not making Jay Powell happy. I mean, he <laughs> it, it's the housing market that he usually Gooses when he needs it, thinks to go better, and crushes when he thinks needs to slow down. He's trying to crush the housing market, and it's not getting crushed. Yeah, that's super interesting. Yeah, I mean, you you wonder if if inventory stays this low, it's going to be if this will continue to be boom times for builders or at least single family builders in the in the next couple of years. Well, until something breaks in the economy, which J. Powell seems determined to make that happen, so stay tuned. <laughs> true. True. Well, I do, you know, you you joked before we started filming that we would have to talk about the R word, the recession, but I'm going to wait on that because I do want to talk about um, something you you posted, your team posted recently about um, construction costs and basically how they've been impacted over the last couple of months. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you've been learning about construction, the trends for construction costs? Yeah, so the commodities, lumber being the biggest, which um, has come back down. So, um, and that goes for aluminum and a lot of other things that go into building materials. So the the building material companies are getting some relief on commodities, but their labor costs are still going up. And so uh, they're not planning on dropping price. In fact, they're planning for more cost increases this year, but not as much as they charged last year, which is really disappointing to my construction clients. They, they're they hoping to get some big cost relief and other than lumber, they're really not getting it. They'll get some of their, some of the, I think the companies that made the most money in construction were the trade partners who were, who were just able to charge whatever the heck they want and had a ton of profits. I'm I'm hearing some of their profit margins are coming down. So maybe, maybe you go out to bid on something now and you're getting a better bid than you did uh, but it's not coming from the material side of things. It's coming from the installer just saying, okay, I'll, I'll go back to normal profit margins here. Wow. That, yeah, that, that's wild. And I mean, I guess in a lot of senses, it would be good if, if costs could come down for everyone, but it, I guess that supports the idea. If, if the builders can continue to pass along these costs to the consumer, which it sounds like they are able to do, um, it doesn't look like new, new home prices are going to come down anytime soon. Well, this is not widely known, but nationally, the home builders have dropped prices about 12%. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, uh, and it's a combination of price um, declines and incentives. And the biggest incentive is they've been buying down the mortgage rate. So they, they've been paying a significant number of points up front to get somebody's mortgage rate down into the fives. Um, and they're selling homes. And, and their margins are still fine when they're doing that, particularly because they're getting some lumber cost relief too. So they're like, look, we we found a payment here and um, we're, we're, we're a better advantage than the resale market now because that hasn't corrected very much. And that's one of the reasons why they're doing so well. Wow, that's pretty interesting. I've always wanted to get that data. Like people have asked me that question many times, how you factor in incentives in the decline of price, like basically the effective price of a property. 
Um, do you just get that from your surveys of builders and figure out how they're well, how they're incentivizing people? Yeah. I mentioned those thousand consulting studies we do. A, a lot of them are going into new home communities and figuring out what's going on and helping people price uh, what. So that's we, you know, we we collect that data. But I'll, I'll tell you, if they want, the builders disclose that on their earnings calls. Mm-hmm. So that's publicly available information. They'll tell you exactly what they're doing. It's, it's a great data point. And how about the composition of new homes? Uh, there's been a lot made that builders are building. Bigger houses, for example, there's not a lot of inventory for quote unquote starter homes, that sort of thing. Has that trend continued as well? No, their homes are definitely smaller. That we, oh, okay, from a ball. Yeah. So, but to your point, they're probably going from 2,500 to 2,400. I mean, they're not, they're not going, getting too small. But what they're, they're trying to do for an affordability solution is build a smaller home, ideally. You know, they can get one more home per acre or something like that and, and divide the land across a, costs across more units. And, and they're, they've been stripping costs out of the house now, too. So the houses are a little more bare bones than they were a year ago. Again, to get the payment down, because mortgage rates have risen so much, uh, they got to get the payment right. So it sounds like there has been a little bit of affordability relief for the new home sales market. Oh, yeah. Um, do you see it falling any further or given what you're talking about is probably going to stabilize? To find affordability relief, they, you know, mortgage rates have gone up. So that's been affordability disaster. Right. But they've right. been combating that with all these these other things. I, I think on a payment standpoint, though, Dave, it's still more expensive than it was a year ago for somebody to buy a house. So you mentioned uh, the, the recession and Jerome Powell. Um, why do you think... You know, despite the efforts of the Fed to cool the economy, the housing market is holding up as well as it is in terms of price. You know, volume is obviously down pretty significantly. You know, when the Fed raises rates to cool the economy, it it usually takes 12 to 18 months. So we're kind of in that place right now. It just takes a while to go through the system. I think it's a lack of resale supply. And I think it's some of that baby boomer wealth I mentioned, too. And, you know, the Fed's never done done this right after the government distributed trillions of dollars all across America. And so, um, I mean, there's some real haves and have-nots out there, but the haves are still spending and doing fine. And probably the biggest have is businesses whose balance sheets have never been better. I uh, even look at the, the publicly traded companies. Um, they're, they're in great shape. They're, they're, in fact, this last quarter... They bought back more of their own stock than ever before. You're, if you're, I mean, what's a sign of having a great balance sheet more than that? So he's really fighting an uphill battle where, where he's trying to slow the economy, but everybody's in great shape. Not everybody. Mm-hmm. But yeah, but it's difficult. So what is your take about the recession? I have to ask. <laughs> well, we, you know, we, we were planning on one in the back half of this year. And um, now it looks like if, if he's going to get it, it's probably going to be early next year. And, and, you know, there's lots of definitions of a recession, the negative real GDP, that could happen this year. That, but that could just mean the economy is growing at 3% and inflation is 4 That would technically be a recession. Um, I mean, what we care about is unemployment going up. And, and the Fed's own forecast is saying we're forecasting unemployment to go up a percent. So they're trying to do that. <laughs> Right now, people who are getting laid off seem to be finding jobs right away. So unemployment really hasn't moved much at all. 
And that's why we pushed it off to next year. I think the Fed is really um, having a tough time getting the economy in check and bringing inflation back down, which which they're adamant about doing. They, that they are. They have been very clear about that. Right. Do you think that there's any possibility that the economy is less interest rate sensitive than it used to be? Well, you know, if you've got a great balance sheet and interest rates go up, you can handle that. So I, I think you can you can make that argument. I, well, another argument would be that every thanks to Dodd Frank, everybody's got a fixed rate mortgage. There's hardly any adjustable rate mortgages out there. So uh, rates are going up, but your house payment isn't changing. So and that that was not the case before. Usually, about a third of people had an adjustable rate mortgage. So I I th- I think that could be the case. What makes me hesitant is consumer credit card debt and other things are near all time highs, and they're very interest rate sensitive. The auto industry is very interest rate sensitive. Um, the housing industry is very interest rate sensitive, and there's not a lot of housing. So if you're, I mean, if you're a realtor or a title company, you're really struggling. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I think you you may that you may be correct, but I still think it's interest rate sensitive. Though. Yeah, yeah. I'm just curious. I mean, it's it's just interesting because you think about how housing being one of the most leveraged industries and asset classes and it's holding up but there are obviously other variables to that but it's just i'm curious if the tool especially like you said after distributing trillions of dollars like is the tool just not as effective as it's been in other scenarios when they've raised interest rates to try and accomplish the same goal so about 10 years ago speaking about levered there was about an equal number of debt and equity in America. There was about $9 trillion in debt on houses and about $9 trillion in equity. Today, it's $12 trillion in debt and $31 trillion in equity. <laughs> oh, my God. What? Exactly. So most people wow. are not levered at all. In fact, a third of homeowners, Dave, don't even have a mortgage. Wow. I mean, this is that, those are the primarily the baby boomers. That that blew my mind. I I had no idea where you were going with that. That was incredible. That's incredible. I mean, I guess it makes sense that equity growth uh, in property values has just been remarkable even before the pandemic, going back like fifteen years now or twelve years. Yeah. So I I just looked at this. I'm not going to get the math exactly right, but um, you know, everybody refinanced too. So so I think there were nine million people who refinanced without pulling money out. Um, and so they got their payment down like an extra, well, I think it was 2,600 bucks a year people saved. So 9 million homeowners saved 2,600 bucks a year. And then about another 4 million uh, refinanced and pulled some money out and their payment went up an average of 1,800 bucks a year. Hmm. So when you kind of drill down into it, it's like this, this was like a great opportunity to reduce your house payment. And then home prices go up 45% in three years too. And you're sitting on that mortgage. That's super interesting. Yeah, I, I didn't realize how many rate and term refinances there were, and saving all that money probably contributes to inflation too, and how people are sort of hold holding up. It's just twenty six hundred dollars of more spending power that that those homeowners have. That's a great vacation every year. Yeah, sounds nice. Uh, <laughs> well, John, I did want to ask you about something. Um, one. Uh, thing we, we're starting to see here a little bit is some legislation coming into place to try and 
create more affordable housing. Um, there's, are you familiar with the, um, the Live Local Act that was passed in Florida? Yeah. And our team in Florida, we, we do, you mentioned Twitter. We also do a newsletter every Friday. We publish a lot of content for free. free. And our team in Florida wrote a piece on the Live Local Act about within a week after it being passed, so in April. Um, so they know more about it than I do. So uh, from, from my understanding, it's a, it's a uh, policy that just went into place that will attribute $711 million for housing projects and assistance through the, uh, a, you know, a, a state entity there to create and build on housing programs. The bill goes into effect July 1. You know, your team has looked into this. What do they think the impact of, you know, it seems like a big dollar amount. Do you think it will have an impact on affordability? Um, it, it is a big dollar amount. Everybody, although developers in Florida are super excited about it, it's it's for development and you have to set aside, I think it's 30 to 50% uh, for affordable units, but affordable is 120% of the median income. So it's not <clears throat> that bad. Uh, you know, it's not like you have to go down to, you know, 50% of median income. Uh, and I was just talking to Leslie Deutsch, who's our team member who runs that in Florida. She said that you can do that and a $360,000 townhome qualifies. I mean, you <laughs> can get these subsidies. The bigger thing, Dave, though, is they, they're cramming down on the cities that you can't stop the rezoning. So if they want to scrape a Kmart and put, put apartments on it or put townhomes on it, the city can't stop it. That's the state's attempt to, to combat the NIMBYs. So th- th- that... Um, that has nothing to do really with the $711 million, but that, that could, could be a huge construction boom because getting those approvals, as you know, is really challenging at the local level and they're, they're trying to mandate it. So, you know, it's picking backing up what California did here a couple of years ago with accessory dwelling units. They basically told the cities, Hey, you can't stop people putting a sex three dwelling units in their backyard. And we went from something like 1,600 ADUs a year to 21,000 wow. here in California. And, you know, and the cities are still trying to fight it. But um, yeah, it's interesting that these, these bigger entities, the state, the state level, are trying to solve the problem because the, the problem really is local. Yeah, it does seem that way. And, you know, I know uh, Washington did something similar with the ADUs. Uh, Colorado, I think, is considering it. It does seem like a lot of states are considering this approach and does seem like a reasonable way to improve the amount of affordable housing in, in the market. Yeah. You know, and if Annie and Freddie, um, they'll, they'll allow you to include tenant income on some of these things, but it has to, right now it has to be backward looking. So you can't borrow for something you haven't leased out yet. You got to show 12 months worth of uh, history. If, if they would just look at it like typical apartment financing where they know that, hey, that's going to be leased up at 1500 a month. Um, that could help a lot of people build an ADU. So is it is it similar to like other lending requirements where you need two years of, of rent to be able to count it towards your income? Yeah, I, I, had, I had heard one, but you would know better than me. Okay, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it depends a bit. Um, interesting. So I, I wonder, like, do you think... Um, you know, they, it sounds like these are interesting uh, ideas. Do you think it will have, you know, for obviously for the people who would get those affordable, you know, let's call them more affordable housing, um, that that would help. But do you think that will have any impact on broader prices? Let's just continue with the Florida example here. Do you think it would like actually have an impact on 
appreciation or home prices in that market? Well, it should. I mean, the more supply you put into a market, the the more demand and supply come back into balance and you should see less price appreciation and um, less rent growth. Yeah. Uh, I guess it will be an interesting case study to see here if uh, if it's going into effect so soon to see what's going on, because obviously prices in Florida have gone um, up at some of, if not the fastest pace in the entire country. About 60% in three years. Wow. Across the Strait of Florida. Yes. That's I know. unbelievable. Wow. Right. That's staggering number. You're dropping a lot of good stats here, John. <laughs> Well, John, uh, you know, as I shouted out, John's a great follow on Twitter. But if people want to learn more about your research, is there anywhere else they should do that? Yeah, we're a ton of we post even a lot more on LinkedIn. So just follow our company on on LinkedIn. And we have a newsletter. It's it's jbrec.com, where there's a ton of free content there. That's our marketing is giving some stuff away for free. Um, so I would recommend that. And then, you know, if some of your clients are flippers or maybe uh, good sized landlords, we have a couple surveys where we survey flippers and landlords. And if they want to participate in that, it's just a couple minutes a month or even the flipper ones once, or once a quarter, they get all this, the data associated with that as well. It's a great offer. So definitely check that out. Uh, if you're interested, again, it's jbrec.com or check them out on Twitter or LinkedIn. John, thanks again for joining us. We really appreciate it. You bet, Dave. Thanks. Thanks again to John for joining us today. That was an incredible episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I think John is as good as it gets in terms of summarizing what is going on in the housing market and the housing industry in general in a really concise way. Hopefully this gives you a better sense of what is happening. I personally found that data about new home construction really fascinating if you look at the history of recessions and housing, you see that tip, this is really unusual, where there is an economic downturn or home sales volume declines, but builders are actually increasing their building and they're doing really well. So that was really interesting and something I'm definitely going to look more into. And I really enjoyed his commentary sort of about the, the policies that we discussed at the end about um, Florida and some of the efforts there. Um, initiating to try and improve affordability in the housing market. It's wild to hear that housing prices in Florida went up 60% in three years. And it's good to see that, you know, who knows if these policies are going to be the exact right ones, but that at least there is some effort to try and increase affordability in those markets. I would love to hear what you thought of this episode. And if you liked it, please give us a good review on either Spotify or Apple. We really appreciate good reviews. And if you get value out of this episode or any episode of On The Market, we would appreciate you taking a couple of seconds to leave us a great review. Thanks again for listening. And we'll see you next time for On The Market. On The Market is created by me, Dave Meyer, and Kaylin Bennett. Produced by Kaylin Bennett. Editing by Joel Esparza and Onyx Media. Research by Pooja Jindal. Copywriting by Nate Weintraub. And a very special thanks to the entire Bigger Pockets team. The content on the show on the market are opinions only. All listeners should independently verify data points, opinions, and investment strategies. The housing market is changing, and finding your way right now can be a bit tricky. There are rate shifts, there are confusing headlines, but 
At the end of the day, your goal hasn't changed. You probably still want financial freedom as much as ever. Well, the good thing is that experienced investors know it's not about trying to time the market. It's about the amount of time you have in the market. And if you're ready to get into real estate investing game, you can still do that. Or you can take your game to the next level by finding an investor-friendly agent. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in just a few minutes. You head over to biggerpockets.com slash deals, enter in some details about what you want, where you want to buy, and boom, you instantly get matched with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com slash deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com slash deals. That's biggerpockets.com slash deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investments in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.